Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 235 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by Don Wilson, a wildlife and nature photographer living in Estes Park, Colorado, at the base of Rocky Mountain National Park. Don is a fantastic wildlife photographer and the president of the North American Nature Photography Association. On the podcast this week, we discussed how Dawn has leveraged her college degrees in pursuit of her full-time photography career, her 15-month trip in an RV, raising awareness about wildlife conservation, the top ethical issues facing nature photographers, Dawn's role as president of NAMPA, the changing landscape of the places that we love and the new reservation systems we're starting to see, and lots more. Well, are you tired of the constant bombardment of self-promotion on social media and the overall lack of meaningful engagement that often plagues those platforms? I promise you're not alone. But there is a solution, and it's called Nature Photographers Network, a platform for and by nature photographers. This platform has some of the best articles and forums on nature photography on the web, and you'll surely find many like-minded photographers to engage with. So don't forget, as listeners, you're entitled to a free 30-day trial to Nature Photographers Network plus 20% off your first year of membership. Just head over to naturephotographers.network forward slash f-stop or find the link in the show notes to get started with your free trial. All right, let's get to the show. All right, Don Wilson, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Yeah, I've uh, been following your work for quite a few years now. I feel like uh, if I were to uh, encapsulate the work that you do, I would say cute baby goats in Colorado. (laughs) That is one thing I actually haven't been very successful with this year. But yes, over the years, I have photographed a lot of baby goats. And and Rocky Mountain bighorn sheep. Bighorn sheep, moose, elk, a lot of elk. They live right outside my door here. So that is a, a big, big subject that I tend to spend a lot of time with. Yeah, I'm always jealous whenever I see your images because I'm like, man, they never do that stuff for me. <laughs> <laughs> Takes a lot of time. I know, and I know. It's that's the the big difference between wildlife and landscape photography. It's you know, landscape for the most part is you get some you know, a good hour in the morning, good hour in the afternoon, and that's kind of it for the day. In most cases, uh, wildlife, sure. it's kind of sitting there and waiting for them to do something. They don't take direction very well. Yeah, it takes a whole uh, whole other level of patience. <laughs> uh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, for, so for people who are not familiar with you and your work, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and would love to learn about how you got into photography. So I am a full-time photographer and I do a lot of writing as well. So I'm one of those that does both sides of that aisle. And it's, it's kind of a nice combination. I get to, when I'm out in the field, think about a whole package and telling that story, not only with photos, but how would I add the words to it too, to tell the background about it. Just this afternoon, I went out, did a real quick run into, into town to photograph a farmer's market here in town for an article I want to pitch about, about this area. So I'm always kind of thinking about how to combine those things together, but I do, I, I do a lot of, a lot of photography. It's all outdoors and it's been, it's been a fun ride. It's not the easiest way in the world to make a living as we can all attest to, but I love doing it and love being outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. I think uh, for anyone who wants to do photography full time, I feel like it requires 
an exceptional list of other talents on top of being a good photographer, right? Absolutely. I have. So prior to, so I've done, you had mentioned, asked me about how did I get started in photography? And like most of us, we you picked up a camera as a kid and carried it around and you might have maybe photographed outdoor subjects when we were kids, or maybe it was people and our friends, or I grew up out in the East Coast. I did a lot of, as I could, you know, got my driver's license, I would go into the city and photograph some of the buildings over there. But once I moved out to Colorado, the subjects definitely changed, which is part of the reason why I moved out here. But I also have, I spent about 20 years in corporate marketing positions. So did a little bit of, actually, I've done some medical photography and surgeries. So that's even a little bit of a, a different spin. But I do have, I studied, um, I have a MBA in marketing and I get people to ask me, they're like, how do you not have like the biggest, most successful business in the world? I'm like, it's just a sign of how hard it is. It's when it's hard to market yourself, it's, it's personal. It's different when you're marketing somebody else's product, but it can be hard to market yourself and sell yourself. And, and it's, it is, it's a tough industry to not only break break into, but to stay competitive and stay kind of one step ahead of what everybody else is doing. Yeah, man, you nailed the, you nailed it. I, I feel like you also are stealing my questions because I was going to ask you a lot about your, your degrees. Cause I know that you have a communications degree as well as an MBA, as you already mentioned. And I was really curious how you've been able to leverage your education and in, in communications and marketing and, and, and your MBA as a photographer, like how has that helped you? You know, there are a lot of times, you know, we were talking a little bit about sitting out and watching wildlife. And there are many times where I wish I could sit there all day and just watch and observe and learn. But then that business side of my brain starts kicking in and it's like, you're not going to make any money off this little bird doing whatever it might be want to be thinking about doing. And so you start to think about those things like, where can it be sold? How am I going to use it? Is it a good stock photo? The stock market's kind of bottomed out for the most part anyway, these days. So then you start thinking of, well, is it a good photo to represent maybe a workshop that I want to put together? Or is it a good photo for an article I might want to pitch? And then that gets into my communications aspect of, well, what kind of article in, in full could I write about? And so those are the kinds of things I start to think about while I'm sitting there watching, watching for that that special moment with whatever animal I might be out in the field with, or even at sunrise or sunset. I've I've been doing a lot more landscape photos too. I feel like that mindset is a double edged sword, <laughs> in terms of giving you some incredible leverage about kind of pre visualizing how to how to take advantage of the moment that you find yourself in and how to commercialize and and um, use the use your time as effectively as possible. And I'm wondering if you also believe that or that mindset can also be a hindrance in terms of your creative process or preventing you from pursuing something that might might not necessarily be as commercially rewarding, but could be more personally fulfilling. That definitely comes up. It's there are times where you know, I want to go out and photograph a particular subject, but I know there's not a market for it, or it's a market that's already saturated, especially with wildlife. And, and I guess you can see that a lot with, with landscape photography these days that, you know, you get it out there with the tripod holes and it's like, why am I taking the same photo that you do a web search and, you know, a million shot hit, hits will come up with a, pretty much the same exact photo. Maybe just the clouds change or the light conditions change. 
but there are, you know, there, like you said, it's a double-edged sword. There's that, that pre-visualization of the creative side of, and I, and I very much do have that both sides of that brain of, you know, the pre-visualization of the creativity of thinking about what kind of photo do I want? Thinking about what kind of inventory of photos do I already have and what am I missing? And then the pre-visualization of how am I going to use this once I do produce it? How is it going to be received by potential customers, whether that's a, a business client or a consumer type of client too? Yeah. What would be different about your approach to photography if you didn't have to think about those commercial interests? If money wasn't an issue, it would be, <laughs> I would be back. And I don't know how much you know about, uh, I did spend almost a year and a half on the road in an RV traveling around. And yeah, I was going to ask would, you about that later, for sure. I would be out there doing that again in a heartbeat, just seeing and exploring and, you know, our, our world's changing so much and so fast. Um, you know, living in Colorado, I'm sure you, you, you've started experiencing the, I don't want to call them restrictions, but you have to plan out a little bit more now. You can't just pull up to Rocky Mountain National Park and go in when you want to. It's You have to kind of think it out ahead of time. Or if you want to go camping, you have to make sure that you have those permits and or backcountry um, backpacking. And it's it's not quite as easy as it used to be. So it's that would be the biggest thing I would love to be able to do would, would be to get back out in an RV and, and just get out and see as much as I can before it does either change to the point where it's not the same as to what I'm familiar with, like some of the wildfires that have happened here in Colorado or to the point of access. Yeah. It's shifting quite a bit. Um, here close to home, there was a wildfire wildfire that was started by people camping in the basin at, um, Ice Lake Basin, which is a very popular place. And the entire basin is closed this year. You can't even go there um, because of the wildfire. And um, I think they're going to implement a permit system there within the next year or so. I was was actually expecting it to happen this year, that they would basically say, you know, you have to have a permit before you go up here. And I remember 2013 is the first time I went up there. I was on a weekend in August and I ran into like two people. <laughs> and now if you go there, there's like hundreds of people, of course, you know, because of Instagram and all that fun stuff. So how else have you seen the uh, locations that you like to visit be impacted by visitation as well as uh, increased regulation? So there's, you know, one one challenge is certainly the the number of people. Um, you know, just yesterday I was mentioning to somebody I was out photographing some moose yesterday morning, and you know there were probably just like you said, I could go to that same spot five, six, seven years ago, and there would be maybe a handful, you know, four or five other photographers. And you and I don't want to say you could pretty much do anything you wanted to do. I mean, there's still you know there's still just ethical things you should do when you're out in the field. But yesterday there was, you know, several dozen photographers, several, you know, cars driving by, stopping in the road. Um, you know, we kept telling them, you know, don't stop there. We've got, you know, moose that are getting ready to cross. And they'd stop, you know, that, that just opens it up. Well, I've got to stop now. And then you'd see other photographers that would, you know, try to get a different shot and they get too close and they, they push the animals into, you know, other locations. And it's, I don't want to say it's made me 
anti-people, but it, it has made me kind of, you know, it's almost forced me to say, you know, what is out there that's a little bit different? Is there a different place that I could go? Is it a different, maybe it's a different time of day when, you know, the animals, it's a different light. And then I get a little bit more creative with playing with light or it does kind of force you into thinking, thinking outside the box a little bit, but there is definitely an increase in number of people out there doing it. Um, Colorado in general is, it's a hot spot for photographers. I spent each winter, I spent some time down in Louisiana. And this past winter, I was down there with a flock of, gosh, it must have been like three or 400 bohemian wax wings. And it was just me. It was so nice. It was, <laughs> uh, yeah, I kept thinking, I'm like, if this was Colorado, you would have, you know, one photographer for every bird that's sitting out here almost. And and it's nothing against Colorado because there's a reason why Colorado is so popular with photographers that it's, it's beautiful out here. We have a ton of subjects, whether you like little macro things up to the big mammals, it's, it's an amazing place for photography, but that's why it does attract a lot of people. Um, and there are still a lot of hidden gems out there. And I, and I think that's just where it's, I, I'd like to focus a little bit more on, on looking for those places. Yeah. It's, I've, I came to that conclusion myself probably two, three years ago. My, you know, just you go to the places that you're used to going and there's no people and, you know, you show up and there's 20, 30, 40 people there and you're like, what happened? And part of it is to, you know, I'm involved with Nampa. I know you're involved with Nature First. I'm, I'm involved with a little bit with Nature First. Um, you know, we, we talk about ethics out in the field and we talk about, how it has changed. I've seen more car tracks driving through meadows of fields or, you know, patches of flowers packed, packed down where it's, you know, obviously the, the, the best photo spot or the, you know, the, the most wide open or whatever it might be. Um, and definitely, I've definitely seen a lot more of that over the, over the, you know, the last few years in particular. Yeah, me too. I, uh, last fall, um, I went, to a place that we've been going to for a few years now over by Buena Vista, Colorado. And before this year, we would never see people there, not once. And of course, COVID plays a role, but we were, we were, we were at the end of this like side road, uh, maybe 200 feet off the main road, up this dirt road that goes up to a tr main triad. And it has this beautiful view of these mountains and this sweeping uh, aspen trees, like changing aspen, just beautiful. And we were camped there with three vehicles in this little cul-de-sac. And so, you know, we got up early and we were taking photos and we came back and cooked breakfast and we're taking a nap in our cars, in our rooftop tents. And all these people started driving up into our campsite while we were in our tents, leaning up against our cars. Like, there's just no respect for privacy or people's space anymore it's just i don't want to be like ranty or whatever but it's just been really interesting to see that shift it has been it's yeah there, there's a different level of photographer in the field these days a little bit more of a checklist maybe and, and again i don't, I don't want to sound negative about it but it's a there's a different almost a different dedication level that if you're willing to to be up there at sunrise on the peak of a mountain. That means you're hiking up in the middle of the night. It's dark. It's, you know, headlamps only help so much for seeing everything that you need to see along the trail and that kind of thing versus doing that same hike in the middle of the day. It's still just as beautiful, but it's, 
it's a different level of, of dedication to do it. Um, and I definitely have seen that. And I know, you know, I live right outside of Rocky Mountain National Park. And I can remember a day where you could go into some of those parking lots at eight o'clock in the morning and you'd never have an issue with parking. Um, it is a little bit, I will be honest, it's a little bit better with the reservation system, but it's still, you know, people are trying to beat it in first thing in the morning. So the parking lots are filling up a little bit earlier. You know, there were times you could take a sunrise hike, you know, to get up to, you know, a lake or something for a sunrise photo shoot. And you, you would be the only one up there. You wouldn't see anybody even on the way down. And now as you come down, it's just a solid stream of people coming back up. But, you know, the flip side to that is that we can't help protect some of these spaces, these open spaces, like they need to be protected if people aren't out there appreciating it either and understanding what needs to be preserved. So the more that people experience, the more that people spend time outdoors, I think they start to get an appreciation for for what could potentially be lost if we don't protect them. So that's kind of the flip side that I try to think about too. No, I think you're right. It's it, Sometimes it's hard to keep that focus, but I totally agree with you. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit because you had mentioned it earlier. You had done a uh, 15-month uh, trip in your RV back in 2016, and I'd love to hear a lot more about that. And I'll just kick off with the uh, first question, like what was your – what was your original goal for that trip? So where that kind of came from is in 2012, um, I had my mom got sick. The day that she got out of the hospital, my partner of 15 years passed away unexpectedly. Oh wow! And three years to the day from his death, my dad died unexpectedly. And I was sitting at a desk in corporate office doing Excel spreadsheets and somebody, I was watching a bird or something outside the window. And I'm like, this just isn't where I I need to be outside. So I left that job, took care of some personal things. um, And the more and more time I spent outdoors, the more and more photography I was doing, I, I was, I just, I wanted to be at these places first thing in the morning. I wanted to be where I wanted to photograph. And I looked at an RV as that, that method or that almost like a tool to, to do that for me, to have all the conveniences, to be comfortable, to have someplace warm to sleep. That way I could take my dogs. I had three, three Huskies at the time. And, and so, yeah, so eventually I just kind of bit the bullet and bought an RV. And what wound up happening is that I had what I called my ABC list. I had a list of A places, which are those top destinations that I absolutely had to see um, Firefall in Yosemite was one of them, which I'm really glad I did because it was, it took me four or five tries to actually get all the conditions right. It's, it's not an easy one. And now that they've added a permit into the, into the mix too. So you even have that dynamic. And I don't think I was there in 2016 and I don't think since then it's really been as good as it was that year. We had a phenomenal year that, that particular February. And so there was that A list there was a B list that was kind of those places I really, really wanted to see, but I could didn't have to do them right away. And then the C's were all kind of like the places to fill in with. If I happen to be someplace, I'm like, oh, this would be a good place to kind of check out. And I didn't know how long I would wind up being on the road. I had figured it'd probably be about six months or so. About six weeks into it, I met my current partner and he and I, he was traveling full time and we decided to merge all of our RVs and vehicles and bought a bigger RV and just kind of kept traveling and decided that we were going to spend the summer up in Alaska. I drove up there and did a lot of photography up there all summer. We joked that we saw it almost 
all but one Walmart in the whole state of Alaska. So <laughs> um, it's a big state, but there aren't many Walmarts. But the uh, yeah, it was a phenomenal year. A lot of saw so many things. But it's amazing. Even when you you take 15 months on the road and you have destinations and goals that you want to do, you you either get to a place and you know the, the conditions aren't quite right, so you want to go back, or you you go in the fall and you say you want to go back in the spring. Or you go to a place and people then mention other places. Oh, you should check this place out. And so I've, I've seen my list kind of get just ginormous right now. I'm sure you can appreciate that. I'm sure your listeners can appreciate that if they're into being in the outdoors and doing photography. There's always someplace new to explore. Yeah, it was first question I had listening to that story was uh, about your ABC list. Um, I'm curious to hear about kind of like what were the, not the actual places, but in terms of A, B, or C, what were the places that um, categorically most interested you? Because I feel like for myself, I find a lot of the C locations are actually really interesting because they've never been photographed before and they they offer a whole new level of photographic interest that you've just never seen before, but I would, I'd be curious to hear about kind of your take on what you've seen. So the A's were, some of them were places that I never did get to visit with, with Eric before he died. Um, Yosemite was one of them. He had been out there to see Yosemite and I, you know, put work, you know, ahead of things. And I was like, no, I can't go. And so some of them were a personal reason. Some of them were, purely for photography to, you know, I want that photo too. It's, you know, and that was kind of, you know, Firefall, I guess is kind of one of those types of places. Um, yeah. And some of them were just, you know, a particular animal, you know, like for example, um, muskox is something I've always wanted to photograph. And I've done, I've, I've done that up in, up in Alaska. So sometimes it's a subject, not necessarily a location. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, there were places, especially out in the East coast, because I was into photography when I lived out when I grew up out in New Jersey, but I didn't have, I don't, I I almost didn't have the, the circle around me like I do here in Colorado of learning from other photographers or having that sense of community. It's, I think things have changed a little bit on the East coast, but it's certainly not like it is out here in Colorado. Um, So when I got out there, I went out to visit my mom. I went out to, you know, do some fall colors um, in Virginia and West Virginia. And there were some state parks that I was, I'm like, why there's nobody here. And <laughs> I was just finding these like massive um, whitetail bucks. And, you know, we have some, some pretty nice whitetails out, out West, but they were in these beautiful fall colors and there was nobody around. And I'm like, You're oh, like this, this is this idyllic. Is one- yeah. This is wonderful. <laughs> so yeah, so it was it was a nice mix of exactly like you're saying. It was a really nice mix of kind of checking off those places that had always been on my bucket list. It was a nice mix of adding in new places that I had never heard of, and someday I will still get through all that editing that I haven't finished. Yeah, so like, do you have plans for the images that you created on that trip? So. I had always wanted to put a book together. Someday there's actually two books I'd love to write. I'd love to write the whole story about what kind of led up to that and, and, you know, how, you know, one relationship kind of worked into another relationship and and how that's, you know, kind of those shared experiences about being outdoors. Um, You know, and then obviously I'd love to put a photo book together, but, you know, life kind of next, you know, here we are six years later and it's, you know, still haven't really finished 
finished either of those things. I, I think we can all admit that we have projects that we'd love to, we've either started and haven't finished or that we would like to get started or, or we have them finished and all we need is funding for them. I've got a couple of projects that are in that, that boat too. Um, so there's, you know, different stages of it, but there were a lot of um, stock photos, you know, that, you know, that's one thing with wildlife there. There's so much content out there these days that finding new locations really does, does help. Um, so. Yeah, that makes sense. I was curious because earlier you had mentioned, uh, you know, we were talking about these places getting filled up with people. And one of the kind of root causes that you had identified was that people kind of have these checklists of places they want to go. And then you started talking about your own checklist. So uh, I was curious to hear about you talk about kind of your own personal views on checklist-based photography versus other methodologies of experiencing the natural world with a camera? You know, there's, I think, you know, I'm even, you know, and I actually have your website even open here, kind of off to the side, and it's, you know, you look oh, at Oh, I'm some, sorry about that. <laughs> no, you know, you look at some of these, you know, like I, I was mentioning to you when I started, it was, you know, there were some Milky Way photos and some Perseid meteor shower photos that I took a few weeks ago that, it's, I've really been getting into some night photography, partly for that reason that it's, you see things so differently and it gets you to think outside the box a little bit. Um, and I don't feel like I have a big, actually, as I'm saying that I'm looking at the posters on my wall of night skies and it's got a list of all the places I want to photograph night skies. So I still have the checklist, but it's, it's finding something different within that location or how can you photograph it differently? Mm -hmm. It's, um, so yes, I, you know, we all have checklists and if anybody says they don't have a checklist, they're, they're lying through their teeth. If, I, if you tell me that, but, um, there is, it's a big world out there and we should get out there and explore. I mean, just the other day I, I took a, I did a hike out, out in some nearby mountains and went up to a lake I had never been up to before. And it turned out there were three moose in the area, three bull moose. I'm like, gosh, I would. And then I start thinking, I'm like, all right, well, I want to come back for sunrise and, all right, well, that's a, you know, three mile hike to get up there for sunrise. And are they going to be there? And, you know, the lake will be there and the, you know, the whole scene will be there, but the, there's no guarantee the moose will be there. So it's, that's the challenge. It's that it's a high little, risk, high risk, high reward. Absolutely. Most definitely. Yeah. That, you know, the roadside attractions are, you know, pretty much a guaranteed thing other than you can't guarantee what the skies are going to do. But, you know, nowadays with the apps that are out there, there's so much information on how to plan, plan out for the best, best times of the year, or the best, you know, if it's a monsoon season, you're going to improve your chances for getting some interesting clouds or, you know, fresh snowfalls, you know, happen certain times of the year. There's, there's so much information out there these days to help improve your chances of getting a good photo, but you still have to you have to force your brain to kind of think about it. You know, don't be, you know, like some, I saw a presentation once and somebody had said, they're like, Ansel Adams has been done. So don't, don't be Ansel. It's be yourself. It's, and that is very true. Uh, that, that resonates a lot with me. I, uh, you know, I spent probably the better part of 2013 through 15 chasing other people's images, um, you know, popular locations and, um, I just personally didn't find it that satisfying, uh, because you're not doing anything new or different or interesting. Um, so 
my philosophy has shifted a great deal towards, you know, just putting yourself in interesting places at interesting times and seeing what comes out of it and with no expectation. And um, I think there is some luxury to be said from that approach in terms of, well, what happens if you come back with nothing? Well, then you come back with nothing, right? So you had a great hike and a great day in the outdoors and that there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And something else I try to remind people of too is that to you know look up, look down, look behind you. Don't don't just take those or, or or take the traditional shot, take the checklist shot. But then once you're done with that, go all right. Well, what else is here? You know, if I get down on a different angle, if I take a lower angle and and look up, or if I take a high angle and look down, what else? How does that change the perspective? Or you know, if, is there a different way to frame it? Is there something nearby that I can use to frame maybe a distant scene or there's so much you can do. Yeah. And I think, um, for, for people who have been in photography for a really long time, it's really easy to say like, Oh, just, uh, do this. Right. Like, but it's not that easy when you're just getting into it. Right. Because, you know, it's like, you want the biggest bang for the buck. You know, you, you want the, the high reward, low risk maneuver, which, you know, if you're a business minded person, that's actually pretty good advice. (laughs) Uh, But in terms of personal satisfaction, I personally found that that kind of approach didn't, you know, after time, it kind of fades in terms of its ability to keep you going. I I would agree with that. There is definitely a, you know, like I mentioned, I was camping, you know, recently near a, a lake and I kind of looked at it and went, all right, well, this is a really beautiful evening, but you know, it's just, I've seen it before. I've done this before. It's like, what's something different. And then the next night there must've been a little bit more smoke in the air. And as the sun was setting it backlit, all these trees and it had this kind of, and you know, it had this, um, this kind of like sun rays coming through the tree. It just looks so interesting and very abstractish. And, and somebody that I was with, he was, He's like, I already told you there's no moose down there. I'm like, I know there's no moose down there. I was photographing, I was photographing the trees. I was like, look at them. They're beautiful. They're just, you know, and like all the bugs that were, you know, were all kind of backlit. And so you have all these kind of orb looking things and it was just so beautiful. Yeah. And if like, if you just went to that place with the only expectation you were going to get the classic photo that you knew was there, you would have never been open-minded enough to actually capture that stuff. So I think it's important to be open-minded and and eliminate some of those expectations. I would agree. I would definitely agree with that. There's just, I mean, you know, the other thing too, and this is going to age me a little bit. It's, <laughs> um, and I'm not saying it's a regret. It's not a regret by any means, but I do wish I had kind of started a little bit earlier in my getting into the backcountry, doing more of those hikes and things. Cause I have noticed that as I've, uh, as I have gotten older and you know, we don't get younger. Um, it, it does get a little bit harder. It hurts a little bit more the next day. It, you know, I might not be able to maybe get in as far as I would like for whatever reason. Um, so that's something I've started to notice within the last couple of years. So I'm really happy and I'm appreciative for the opportunities I have had and the things that I have seen, um, you know, I do have quite a few friends who didn't start photography until they were, you know, they had retired and it became a retirement hobby for them. And, and they, and they've mentioned that they're like, yeah, it's just, it's too hard for me to do those long hikes anymore. I can't, I can't get down on the ground to do those low angles anymore. So it's, 
know, that's something to think about with, you know, as, you know, if you, whatever opportunity you can get, it might just be something in your backyard, but take those opportunities. Yeah, that resonates a lot with me because as you probably have seen, my whole thing is, you know, getting way up in the mountains and uh, in some pretty remote places that require a lot of effort and physicality to get to. And, uh, you know, I'm 42 now and, you know, it's very top of mind for me that I can only probably do that for so long before it becomes just you know, impossible unless I have some ridiculously good genes. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm very aware of the fact that, you know, I, my time is very limited. And so I've been I've been really trying to take advantage of good health and and, you know, quote unquote, young age, I'm 42. But, you know, I, I, I think that's important to recognize that our, our time on Earth is short. And, and there's a lot to see out there. So much. I mean, I was—I feel like a broken record, but between the San Juan Mountains of Colorado and the deserts of Utah, that's like 190 years worth of photography I could do. You know? <laughs> and I don't have 190 years, so uh, it's, well, it's, it's funny. My my mom's from Germany. My mom was born in Germany, and she she came to the U.S. when she she was five or six years old. And she's never been back. And I've always asked her, I'm like, why have you not gone back to visit or explore? And she's like, because there's so much to see here. And, and growing up, I didn't quite appreciate what she was saying. But now that now that I do, you know, know even more about what's out there in the world, it, it we really do. We have so much to see. Just, I mean, heck, here even here in Colorado, there's places I haven't, still haven't been to, that are you know that Same. I'd like to see. And you know, it's just like we were saying there. You know, the seasons are short. Um, I always get to this time of the year in the summer and I'm like, dang, I didn't, you know, I missed the wildflower season, you know, at this right. spot or I, or, or the, you know, like, you know, the Perseids, you know, you got a couple nights out with those and, or a full, you know, particular full moon, whatever it might be. It's, it, they are very short and they're, you know, they kind of, but there's always going to be something else. You know, that's the other beauty of nature. There will always be something else. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. I mean, I don't have any regrets for sure, but, uh, you know, like you said, in even in Colorado, which I've lived in 98% of my life, there's places I've never been still. And I would love to visit and photograph. And even within a hundred miles, hundred square mile block here in the San Juans, I still haven't touched, you know, like it's, it's amazing how much there is to see. And part of that for me is I think it's important to focus on what's near you. You know, there's, if you, if you really just take a, take a minute to think about it, wherever you live, it doesn't matter where there's going to be some amazing stuff you can photograph. If you, if you actually put your mind to it. I think a lot of people learned that last year with the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> I know there were a couple of times that, you know, when it, the pandemic first started, I was actually out in Utah with a friend. Um, we were photographing a state park out there and, I stopped at Yellowstone on the way home. And, you know, the closer I got to home, I was, I was really looking forward to spending some time in Yellowstone, but little by little, it was like there were fewer bathrooms available. And, you know, the only places you could stop to get anything to eat were gas stations. And I'm like, I probably need to get home before I get kind of stuck out here. But, but yeah, it, and there were still a few times where I still went out and, but yeah, the bathrooms were the hard, the hard <laughs> thing. It was kind of a strange thing, but, um, 
but yeah, it, it definitely kept us close to home and kept us, you know, looking at new things. I know there were some things here in town that I really had never spent as much time with them as I had. And I got some really cool stuff that I probably wouldn't have paid much attention to otherwise. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I want to talk about uh, ethics in nature photography. So I know that's top of mind for you and top of mind for me most of the time as well. Uh, Just off the cuff, uh, what are the top three ethical issues of our time in nature photography? Top three, um, getting too close to wildlife. It's that's a big one for me. And, and I, one of the things I always tell people is, you know, with, with cell phones, you're never, you are just not going to get that close shot of no matter how big that animal is. You just aren't, you cannot get physically, you should not get physically that close to an animal. Um, but what you could do is I always tell people step back and look at the whole environment, look at the animal in that environment. And you actually might wind up with a, a much better picture and a much harder picture to get. It can be really hard to get a really gorgeous scene with an animal just in the right spot. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that, that it really, it upsets me. Um, so before you move on, I want to, I want to learn more about why that's a problem. Why is that an ethical issue? Um, there's a couple of things. One, it, it's, it's for your own safety. Um, you know, I, I never want to see, you know, I know I've heard other people go, you know, well, it's, it's a natural selection. And I'm like, well, that's not fair. It's not, (laughs) that does just doesn't seem fair. I don't want to see somebody get hurt. Um, but you do have to be respectful of these animals. I've been around a lot of big animals over the years and, um, I've had my share of, I don't want to say complete run-ins, but I've had my share of, of instances where, you know, an animal, you know, felt either felt that I was too close or their hormones were oh, yeah. just going, going too fast to, to really tolerate my presence anywhere near them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, you know, for one thing, it, it's a safety thing for, for people. And it can also be, um, it can be a bad thing for the animals. You know, if it's, you know, people that bait animals, you know, that animal can now get used to, I see this with fox a lot, red fox, you know, people feed them on the side of the road. Well, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll wind up, they spend too much time on the side of the road and they will wind up getting hit. Um, you know, mm. so it's the, it's the safety and the, and the survivability of the animals, um, you know, for an animal that is, you know, we have a lot of hunting here in Colorado and, you know, if those animals get really comfortable being around people, their, their behavior might be you know, once the hunting season starts, then, then those animals might be a little bit too comfortable to be around people. And maybe that could potentially be dangerous for that animal. Um, you know, so that's ultimately it's, you know, we have to respect the fact that we are in their world. Um, we don't want to destroy their habitat. We don't want to destroy food sources. We don't want to change their behavior that could potentially, um, you know, either cause them to not eat enough. So for like example, Moose right now, especially the bull moose, are bulking up. They don't eat a whole lot. Elk are the same way. They don't eat a whole lot during the rut. They they can lose between twenty and forty percent of their body weight chasing chasing girls around and chasing the boys away. So, but and then that means they go into winter that deprived of that that fat source that they need to stay warm in the winter. So, yeah. so the more that you photograph them and change that behavior and stop them from eating or making mm-hmm. them uncomfortable in in one natural habitat where they do have a good food source. And if they have to move, that could potentially um, be detrimental to their, to their health. Yeah. I remember, I think my friend Bryn uh, Schmidt was telling me, or maybe I saw a post of hers where she was talking about uh, the Buffalo and Yellowstone or bison, I guess I should say, uh, 
where, you know, in the wintertime, they're using almost all of their energy to just survive. Mm -hmm. And when people are driving through the park and they are trying to get them to move off the road, and that's extra energy that they have to spend to, to just get out of your way or whatever, or maybe you're chasing around with your cell phone or whatever, and, and that can cause them to die mm-hmm. because they have expended so much energy day in, day out because of tourists that they don't have enough fat on their body to survive the winter. Right. And that is true that, you know, all, of, especially the larger, larger mammals, that's, you know, the, the ones that hibernate that, you know, we don't see them, see them too much, but the larger mammals, that that's kind of their, their, their pattern in the winter is just to get through, you know, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to expend as little energy as possible so that I can keep my reserves and just get me through to those, those fresh green blades of grass that are going to start growing in April and May. Um, and we have to respect that. They're going to, a lot of times you'll see them on the roads because that's the path of least resistance goes back to the same concept. They're burning less energy by, by using the roads. So we've, you know, give them their space and allow them to do what they need to do and the more that you understand, I think from a photography standpoint, the more that you understand those behaviors, you get better photos too. Yeah. You know, rather than chasing an animal around, you don't want a back end shot of an animal. You want, you know, front. So anticipate some of that behavior, understand what their, their next move might be. Mm-hmm. Um, don't stop that move, but, but be ready for it. And, and your photos will actually be better for, for it in the long run too. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong. And we might be wading into some controversial territory here, but I'm aware of a relatively famous wildlife photographer who has published books, who was recently accused of baiting foxes with food, and they denied any of that. I'm just curious. I know you're heavily involved with Nampa, and we'll talk more about that later, but how how can we address that as the public in terms of holding people with with clout with fame with money people that are highly successful who are who are engaging in perhaps ethically questionable activities like is it just a matter of voting with our with our money or is there more that we can do to to bring awareness to these issues so there's a couple of things you yeah certainly you know i i never go out and say don't do these types of things but make an informed decision um, if you want to hire a workshop leader, find out what their their practices are. Do they bait animals? Is there, are, is there workshop of a type of workshop where they, you know, bait owls or something? And then make a decision based on that. That do you want to be a part of that process and that cycle? Ultimately, that's how the thing it will improve because you can still get phenomenal photos without doing those types of things. You can get phenomenal images and experiences by just being in the outdoors. And like I said, understanding the behaviors and, and being there at the right time and, and looking for those um, interactions. And, and those are the types of workshop leaders that you want to go out there with. Um, you can, and you can tell from, from photos, you know, how they're, they're capturing those types of images. You usually you can kind of tell yeah, just, how, just based how? on the behavior. Um, you know, there's, there's certain things like if a, Let's say, for example, owls, a lot of times that have been baited over the years. And if you look at, you know, a, a, a true field mouse is, is going to have a different type of tail than a, a pet store raised mouse. So there's little little things that you can look at like that. Um, 
but the, you know, that would be one thing would be, you know, do some research, see what kind of comments they have, you know, about their workshops, see where, where do they go? Is it a, um, is it a, you know, kind of a, a federally funded type of property, like a national park where they're not going to put up with that type of behavior? Or is it something that's more of a private facility? Um, now the flip side to a private facility is that sometimes those are rescue animals and that's the only way that they can raise money to, to feed those animals too. But again, do the research. Are they, you know, what kind of care do they get? Have they ever had any complaints about them? Um, you know, so there, there's just do the research, do, you know, be informed, um, you know, be responsible and, and, and make the decisions from that point. So I know I said, uh, what are the top three ethical issues? Would you say that, uh, baiting is the second one? Baiting definitely a big thing with, with wildlife. I don't, I feel like you don't see it as much anymore as you used to. Hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of awareness around it these days. There's more research being done about it. Um, you know, and the words kind of getting out as well. Um, so, so I, I feel that that's kind of improving, which is always a good thing. Um, you know, the other thing too, I, I'm going to go into the, right into the third one is um, truth and captioning. I think mm. that's something that, I'm not sure what your philosophies are in, you know, we all do editing. That's part of, we're artists, you know, in addition to nat being naturalists and business people, we're, we're artists too. So we do take some liberties with our photography, but, but there is a um, aspect of being truthful in your captions about, you know, without giving away locations. I'm very sensitive about that. I, I don't like giving away locations. I don't use GPS data. I don't, um, mm -hmm. You know, if I'm sharing things, um, you know, so it's, I, I, I'm very sensitive about that, but the truth in captioning is, you know, be realistic. If, if it was a, an animal, you know, a captive animal in a zoo, say that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, um, it just shows that, or if you're photographing a mountain lion and it's a full frame, you know, was it photographed with an 800 millimeter lens with a two times teleconverter on it so that you're at 1600 millimeters. It's, you know, that's a very different photo and use of equipment than a cell phone shot, you know, so give people the right expectations of what they might see when they're out in the field. Yeah. Yeah. I think that truth and captioning really resonates a lot with me. I, not only from the wildlife perspective, but also from the landscape photography perspective, I think what we see is a lot of people, um, uh, and I hate to, you know, beat a dead horse here, but a lot of people like to play on the fact that um, the public is pretty naive in terms of what we can do with our images and the light and in Photoshop. And I think people take advantage of that intentionally because they know that people trust that that's what they're seeing. And, um, you know, there's a, I'm not going to, I'm not going to use any names. Um, <laughs> well, and some things while you're looking for that, some things with landscape photography, and I don't, I think I've only done this twice. You know, where the, it's pretty easy to flip a, to replace a sky out these days. Um, you know, not the only times I have done it, it's usually because I like the sky to the East a little better than what I was seeing to the West. Sure. And in that case, it's, it's still the same light at the reflective light is still the same. So, you know, to me, it feels a little bit more natural, but other than that, it's, um, you know, there's, there's a lot you can do with, with, 
with photography these days. But that being said, you know, there, there are still, there's an aspect that's art, you know, but, yeah, but be honest about that. There's nothing, you know, you know, if you, I don't have that skill. I don't have that Photoshop skill level to create these unbelievable skies that, that weren't there when I took the photograph for somebody that does it's use it, use, use what you have, the talents that you have, but, but be honest about that. You know, that you know, maybe the Milky Way wasn't quite there. You put it, you know, in a spot that looked a little bit better in the photograph, or maybe, you know, the, um, the, the clouds weren't, you know, like I, like I said, you know, maybe the clouds are a little bit better to the East and I swapped them out and put them into the West. And, um, yeah. It's always funny how those kinds of facts come out later after photography savvy individuals pointed out and, and I, you know, whatever, you know, if someone just posts an image and they have no captioning and it is what it is, I don't care about that. Really. It's when people intentionally push you down a path of thinking it's something that was actually experienced when it wasn't. And so I'm going to use this example for you. I'm going to read the caption of the image and then I'm going to tell you the story behind it. So here's the caption. Caption is, the pinnacle of mountain photography is the clearing storm. During this clearing storm, the pinnacles stole the show near X Mountain. And what I happen to know about this particular image is that it was taken without any clouds on a bluebird day, and all <laughs> the clouds were added in later because many friends of mine were actually there on that workshop with that individual, and they know that it was a bluebird day. So... And they use it as a post-processing example in their workshops. So, and all of that is totally fine. Like, I don't care. Like, do what you want to do and make it art. But why present it as this experience that's amazing? The only reason I can come up with is to impress people, you know? Like, ooh, look at this amazing thing I saw and witnessed. And that's just, that. that's where I draw the line, is why intentionally lead people to believe it was you know, like using wildlife as an example, like why would you tell people, oh, look at this amazing picture of this cheetah I photographed in the wild and really it was taking the zoo, you know? It's the same thing. Like just say like this is a cheetah I photographed at the Denver Zoo. You know? Right. Like why, why, why try to tell people that it was something other than what it was, you know? So that's, that's where I'm like, do what you, do whatever you want, but at least be honest about what you're doing when you tell people what it is. Yeah, no, I'm complete, completely in agreement. Wildlife. It's a big one um, because there are so many places where you can go and get captive, captive animal photographs. Yeah. Um, but just be honest about it. It doesn't mean it's any less of a photograph. You still had to work, right. work for that one too. And you still had to know how to use your camera equipment or how to edit it. It doesn't mean it's any less of a quality photograph. Exactly. But I am going to question the, photographer's ethics if they aren't honest about it because then i might be questionable then i might question uh, well what else are they doing or right yeah it's like everything else you see in their portfolio is like i have no idea is any of this stuff actually real <laughs> you know um yeah i think that's important um for so many reasons uh that we have probably over talked about on this <laughs> podcast and people are already rolling their eyes and sending like people are literally sending me hate mail as we talk. So that's awesome. So let's, let's shift gears again. Here's, here's something else that it's not so much about photography. So I'm going to get, I'll, I'll give you even a fourth one, I guess. Um, okay, it's cool. Just respect. You know, I feel like 
not just respect for the natural world. So, you know, I'm very, very sensitive. People probably laugh at me. I tiptoe through fields, you know, trying to make sure I'm not stepping on flowers and plants and, you know, these same hard, surf- hard surfaces. I probably look like a goofball out there, but exactly. Um, but it's respect for other people that are out there too. you know, be aware of your surroundings. Don't stand in front of somebody else's camera. Um, you know, don't <clears throat> you know, say please and thank you. I mean, those kinds of things go a long way. Don't Oh, this one drives me nuts. Do not stop your vehicle in the middle of the road with the doors open. Um, the vehicle stopping is bad enough, but then the doors open. I just had it happen the other day where the, both the driver door and the passenger door were open. They just walked away from their car like that. And I went, really? I'm just, I'll just, I'll sit here. Don't worry. Get your shots. And if you had just closed the door, I could have walked around it. But um, to me, that's, that's one of the biggest things I think is just that, that respect. If we can just respect each other a little bit more while we're out there, we can all enjoy that. If you want to photograph an animal, if you go too close to it, that means everybody's, you're not going to get a good photograph, but it also means everybody's not going to get a good photograph. So if you can work together as a group and ask somebody, Hey, do you mind if I go down to the right hand side, nine times out of 10, they're going to go, no big deal. Or they might tell you why that's not a good idea. Right. You might, you know, you might actually learn some, Hey, the light's a little bit better over here or, Hey, I've been watching this, this animal for a while and I know it's going to move this way. Or actually, Hey man, don't go there because actually the cubs are down there and you don't (laughs) want to like make them run away, you know? So yeah, that, that awareness piece I think is what's lacking a lot nowadays in terms of, what what is the pre- your presence how is that impacting other people yeah yeah, yeah big time i <laughs> just a couple of weeks ago i was talking to my friend kane he was at a campsite somewhere in like lost creek wilderness or something uh by himself in the middle of nowhere in the morning enjoying his coffee you know like enjoying this beautiful sunrise or something and like these people come riding up on their motorcycles right into his campsite uh, like eight o'clock in the morning. It's like, Hey, Hey, we're here. Like, uh, I'm here. You don't need to come up here. You saw me from way down there. Like, it's just amazing that people just don't seem to have that instinct to think about how their presence or what they're doing might impact others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mind blowing. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of a big, big pet peeve with mine um you know i like to say i you know i like to try to say hi to people on a trail you know just as you know simple glance you know smile that kind of stuff just goes a long way it just i feel like we've lost a little bit of that but you're outdoors be happy you know enjoy where you are yeah it's hard right it's hard to enjoy what you're doing when other people are all up in your stuff (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's just i think it's just a different what are people valuing about the experience? Like if, if you're a motorcycle rider, you're probably not there for the peace and quiet, you know? So it's, but it's hard to put yourself in there in other people's uh, position, I guess, but yeah. you know, let's try. A little and bit that is true. Think. We are, all of us experience the, the outdoors for whatever, you know, some of us want to be out there for the peace and quiet. Some of us want to be out there for the adrenaline rush of being on the side of a mountain. It's, sure. And there's every gamut in between, um, so we do need to kind of acknowledge that there's different uses of the outdoors and, and we're all, um, we all need to share We all need to play in that sandbox together, but, but that is what we're trying to do. Let's play in a sandbox together and, 
you know, and see how we can kind of enjoy it all. Yeah, I don't mean to go on like a, a rant, but, you know, I live pretty close to Silverton. I don't know if you spent much time in Silverton in the summertime, but the the trails and the roads up there are just full of ATVs from Texas. And, you know, <laughs> yes. it's, you know, you're like in they're this. Full, they're full of Texas license plates here in Estes Park, too. Yeah, and you're I mean, nothing against Texans. Sorry, uh Michael Rung and Bree Stockwell, who listen from Texas, but you know, I'm up there trying to enjoy some peace and quiet in the mountains, and there's like 30 ATVs driving up this mountain road, and like that's all you can hear. And it's it's like I don't think they just they don't maybe they don't realize like you're having a negative impact on other people's experience. Like me being there, I don't have a negative experience on your on what you're trying to do, you know. So it's, I don't know, how do you, how do we, how do we reconcile that, you know? <laughs> I think one thing is, is don't get adversarial. You know, I think that's, <laughs> sometimes I think we've gotten into this, and I think COVID's made it worse. The I know it the, has for me. <laughs> the, 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 the quickness we have to, you know, almost kind of yell at people. It's, yeah. it's like, what are you doing? It, you know, so it's kind of take a deep breath and, hey, what's, you know, you know, I was kind of photographing that there that you just blew by on and, you know, now I've got dust everywhere. Actually, there's a really interesting photo that I took last year um, down near Crested Butte. It was in the fall and I was out in a dirt road and this guy came flying by with a truck pulling, towing a trailer. And he, wait, he was, had to be at least double the speed of, I mean, just going sure. way too fast. And and, and I'm sitting there and I was trying to photograph in the, you know, the Aspen trees and he drove by and all of a sudden I realized that the, all the dust he created backlit with the sun created this like ethereal moment. It was just this really cool photograph and it's been a, it's actually been a, a popular photo. And so it's, you know, trying to find those good things out of it, you know, trying yeah. not to dwell on, no, the, on the negativity and yeah, no, that's important. I think you're right. It's, it's good to have that perspective and you know, that existential kind of clarity in terms of, you know, what, what is it, what are the positives of this particular moment that I can, that I can glean? I think that's important too. It's hard though. <laughs> it can be, it definitely can be. Don't get me I, wrong. I appreciate the attitude. I'm from Jersey. So, you know, I mean, I feel like I've softened a little bit living out here in Colorado, but you know, every once in a while that'll, that, that Jersey side of me will come out, but yeah. Um, yeah, much to my wife's dismay, I'm turning into that old guy who's like, "Get off my lawn!" <laughs> uh, but I have to tone it down. I I appreciate that. All right, well let's uh let's talk about Nampa. So I know uh, you're heavily involved with Nampa. So what is your role with Nampa, and can you tell us what Nampa actually is and why you got involved uh, with in the first place? So Nampa is the North American Nature Photography Association. So we are the oldest dedicated nature photography association in North America. Um, and that's basically how it started. It was in, I'm going to draw up like, we're about 26 years old. So in, there was a group of nature photographers that basically felt like they needed a sense of, they needed a community of people that were just focused on um, taking pictures of wildlife and landscapes and, you know, water scenes and macro images and bugs. And, and they felt like there wasn't any representation for them. So 
So they developed this this organization that's kind of flourished over the years to really not just be a place, a sense of community for nature photographers, but also to do things like advocacy. We were just talking today about um, some of the things that our advocacy team is doing in working with um, like the copyright office. They're trying to find a way to make copyright submissions easier and getting protection for photographs and um, raising awareness about contest rules so that they're not just rights grabs. So we're doing a lot of that type of work. We do a lot of things around ethics. Ethics is a really big thing for us. And we've got some really exciting things coming out in the next few months regarding that. Um, We do a lot of education for nature photographers, so webinars and um, regional events so you can get out in the field. And and it's, you know, it's kind of a nice social thing, too. It's, you know, if you're a serious photographer, you might, you know, maybe learn some new tips. If you're just looking to to find others that, you know, same type of tribe, um, it, it provides that type of scenario. We do a biannual summit, a big conference where I think I've been to three or four of them now and I leave those conferences just absolutely inspired with some of the projects that, that these, that our members are doing a lot of conservation projects, you know, things like, you know, raising awareness about um, climate change and um, animals that are, you know, on the illegal trade, um, you know, out of Asia and those types of things. There's um, a lot of stuff, a lot of work being done about the wall down on the, the U S Mexico border and what that's doing to the landscape down there. So just these really inspirational things that you're like, yeah, sign me up. I want to do these types of things too. So it's really, um, you know, I think the inspiration, the education, the advocacy, um, ethics, you know, so we do a lot and it, and it's for, um, enthusiast photographers as well as professional photographers. And then, oh, and then my role is that um, currently president. <laughs> just, so. just, just throw that, throw that in there. Yeah, was, <laughs> just that little. I was gonna say, like, you, you failed to mention the fact that you're currently the the president. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's funny. I um, earlier, I think last year, I had Clay Bolt on the podcast, and he was the former Nampa president. Mm-hmm. And um, he does amazing things. Did he tell you his fun story about being on SNL? The skit, the SNL. <laughs> he did not. Did he leave? He, oh, that's got to be his. I think that's one of his best stories. I don't know. I maybe it's just me being kind of silly, but yeah, he. Um, I'm sure he talked about. You know, he he's done a lot of conservation projects around um, bees, and he was over in Madagascar. And while he was over there, um, I think it was actually while he was over there, he he had just come back. Actually, and he was speaking at one of the summit events, and he was talking about how there was an SNL skit about the the guy that went on a date talking about the bees, and it was actually about him. And this bee that he, because he was helping to um, have the the uh, rusty patch bumblebee listed on the endangered species list, and right. yeah, SNL did a whole skit about it. <laughs> well, like a little short skit. I'm like, that has got to be like the top of your resume. How many people can say they've had that kind of thing? They have a skit on SNL about them doing <laughs> what they love. I love that. Yeah. Well, this this kind of ties into your work with Nampa, but um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on why it's important for you to raise awareness about wildlife habitat uh, conservation, and how do you do it? Oh, how do you do it? To I feel like it's a, it's getting to be a tough one these days. But um, why I do it and why you know raising awareness about it is that. You know, I've lived in Colorado for 20 years now. Like I said, I grew up in New Jersey where I've seen a lot of the farmland 
just become, you know, they farm houses out there anymore, it seems like. And I'm kind of seeing the same thing happen in Colorado. And even just the other day, I was thinking about how much pro- how much land we've lost for things like prairie dogs. Mm-hmm. And our ecosystems are based on having those various levels within the ecosystem. So you have right. to have predators and you have to have the the feeder foods. You know, I call them the goldfish of the, the natural world. It's, um, you know, the hawks and the eagles and the, the coyotes have to eat something. So so you need that kind of that balance out there and the more land that we build up on and the more land that we don't take care of the less healthy habitat we have for wildlife um and i've you know the fires the east troublesome and the cameron peak fire that burned gosh more than four hundred thousand acres near where i live last year is just devastated a lot of just prime forested habitat now granted a lot of that was also beetle kill which is part of the reason why it burned so so fast and so hot but um you know, it's, it's all, and the, you know, surprisingly, the animals seem to have adapted. Um, you know, I'm still seeing a, you know, a lot of animals in the same spot. The one animal I haven't seen a lot of come back is, are the small mammals, the chipmunks, the ground squirrels, the ones that Mm -hmm. couldn't run away from the fire. The big mammals could get out of the way. They could, you know, the bears and the, the moose and elk and stuff, they could get out of the way of the fire. But, you know, a lot of the smaller mammals lost a lot of habitat too. Um, I, sometimes I feel like the small guys don't get enough credit out there, but they all, they're all an important part of it. And, um, you know, pikas are are struggling as, you know, as the, our average temperatures are rising. Um, moose are having that same problem. Um, you know, you see things like Arctic fox up in, up in the Northern polar regions are losing a lot of their habitat to red fox, which are moving farther and farther North. Um, you know, so it's, it's kind of happening all over and, I read a really interesting article um, recently about um, climate change depression. Um, it was in the Denver Post, and I, apparently, it's kind of a a new thing that people are experiencing. I shouldn't say it's a new thing, but it's something that's um, you know with with the last few years with the with the changes, the drastic changes that we're seeing, and then there was just that new report that came out about how we've probably passed the point of no return. Um, you know, there's, there's more and more people that are feeling like they're, they've just kind of lost hope. They, they feel like there's, you know, why do anything now if, you know, if we can't, can't improve anything. So it's those kinds of things that, you know, if I can, through my photography and through my writing, if I can, you know, share the experiences with people, you know, like a lot of, you know, people I grew up with back in, back on the East coast, they don't, they've never seen a moose. I mean, heck I could, you know, I could drive 10 miles and have a, you know, a moose. I mean, literally on the same road I live on, if I went 10 miles South, I could probably find a moose at the right time of day. And I just love that. I, and I want others to experience that, you know, to share the world with things with other living things besides just people. So Pika, I think is a compelling story for climate change because first of all, who could hate a pika, right? I mean, they're, oh, they're adorable. Cute, like if you don't know what they are, there's these little, I don't know, chipmunk-like little guys that um, they have this adorable little chirp that they do. My friend Terry Matthews, uh, who passed away a few years ago, but I used to climb mountains with him, and he used to call them his cheerleader because <laughs> they, you know, they're above tree line, and they make this adorable sound that's like, you know, and and um, A very distinct sound. Yeah, and and it echoes in those upper basins. It just echoes everywhere, and and they just skirt around on the boulders. And but what I understand is that the they have a very sensitive, they have a high sensitivity to, to high temperature, 
And, and if, you know, as the temperatures rise in the high alpine, they can no longer survive there and that's where they thrive. And basically because of climate change, they're going to become extinct. You they know. will. Yes, they are definitely. Now, there are some studies being done around, like I think there was one study being done in Sierra Nevadas out in California to see if they are adapting. The problem is, is that they're not adapting fast enough with, right. as the temperatures change. So so there may be some that that can kind of modify what their, their preference is, but in the long run, it will be... Um, it, it's a race. I was actually looking at, um, so I do, I write a, a newspaper column um, here for here in the paper here in Estes Park. And every week it's a different animal. So it's called five fun facts. And every week I, I give five facts about different, you know, particular animal, different bird or something, but the pikas, um, they're susceptible to heat with the potential for dying if exposed to temperatures of 77 degrees or higher for 30 minutes or more. And that's not really a whole lot. I mean, even, like for example, Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park goes up to just just a slightly higher than twelve thousand feet, and there's quite a few pikas up there. And it's pretty common anymore to see the afternoons in the summer to be in the mid seventies. Um, so we've, you know, I I feel like I've seen a, a decrease. I don't know for sure if the numbers have been or if they're just not as close to the roads because of the number of people around there these days. But um, I mean, yeah, I- it's. I, I travel to some pretty remote locations here in Colorado and I'm seeing less and less pica. Yeah. yeah. And I've been doing this for 40 years. Well, 36 years. <laughs> yeah. You definitely, you know, even if you're not doing a, a formal study and doing counts, you definitely, you start to notice it. You kind of like all yeah. of a sudden one day you just are like, wow, you know, I, I feel like I could sit here and eat lunch and see a dozen pica running around. And now I'm right. seeing one or two. Um, yeah. Moose Although- are that. Moose marmots, are marmots are everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> marmots seem to be a little bit more adaptable. They don't seem to be as sensitive to the yeah, they temperatures. Can survive off of like transmission fluid. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, where they lick the lick tires and lick tail, oh, ha- tailpipes uh, marm- and the worst. But yeah, it's um, I don't know. It's I feel like unless you spend a lot of time over subsequent years in the same places it's hard to see those things, you know, because you don't have a reference point. So that's where I feel like us as nature and landscape photographers who are dedicated, you know, year after year after year, we start to notice these things and we can be a voice for what we're starting to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and visuals always help any story, you know, of whether course. it's a landscape or an animal that's always going to, to grab attention or video, if you can get into video, um, you know, those types of things are always going to grab people's attention and tug at heartstrings and, you know, help people, you know, if you, you know, like for some of your photos where you're standing up, you know, obviously standing up on some of these high mountain, mountain peaks, it's, you know, it gives people a sense of freedom, even just looking at those photos, you know, there's studies that show that that helps reduce stress, it's, you know, it can reduce stress levels. So we don't want to lose that stuff. It's Yeah. All right, Don, wrapping up. Who would you recommend for the podcast or for our listeners to learn more about? So there's a couple of people I would recommend. One is uh, Lisa Langell. She's a, she's a a fellow NAMPA member, but she is super, super positive. She's an absolute blast. Um, Does a lot of, she lives down in Arizona. So she does a lot of 
landscape, desert landscape, as well as some wildlife stuff. Super, super phenomenal at photographing hummingbirds. I think that's oh, actually cool. where she is right now. Um, the other person I would mention is, is somebody I actually just recently, recently met. He was our guide when I was up in Alaska for my brown bear workshop. And that was Eric Fisher. Um, we had an absolute ton of fun with him and he was, he was an absolute good sport. We had, um, we had some, uh, interesting experiences out in the field and with, (laughs) um, clients and discovering what was, it was like to kind of float down one of the rivers, but, um, (laughs) hopefully she won't get mad at me for, for mentioning that, but she, she was a great sport about it. And, and he, he was just absolutely phenomenal about it. So he's got a, a great, great attitude, but he absolutely beautiful photos of, of brown bears and some other things that he enjoys, but brown bears are kind of his thing. Beautiful. Well, and in your client's defense, I mean, that's, that's all how we all learn. So, you know, <laughs> just got to roll with it. Yeah. yeah. No, she was, it was fun. Awesome, Don. Well, what do you have coming up that you uh, want our listeners to know about? So I, so I do um, guiding in Rocky Mountain National Park and, you know, we're coming into the fall season. So it, so anyway, so, so yeah, so I do guide, um, I guide, I do private, private guiding in Rocky Mountain National Park. So whether people, everything's customized, whether it's um, wildlife goals or, um, or landscape goals, we'll, we'll do pretty much anything. I'll do short hikes um, to get to some really pretty morning spots or, or we can just stick by the road and see what's going on. But, you know, the elk rut's coming up and um, Rocky's got some couple nice little, little spots for some fall colors, depending upon what time of time of the season it is. Um, and then I have a group, I'm taking a group up to Churchill to photograph polar bears in November. Oh, and cool. I, I believe we have one spot open on that trip. So if anybody's interested in that, just reach out to me. That should be, um, <laughs> so hopefully this variant stays stays at bay. That's the only, that's the only caveat at this point, but yeah, it was a postponed trip from last year. So um, we have one person that wasn't able to, to continue with the dates for this year. So I have one spot for that. Um, I am taking a group up to Yellowstone in the winter, um, filling in for a friend of mine. And I believe that that trip is, is full. And then I've got a brown bear workshop on the, on the books for next year, but I'm kind of hesitant to schedule too many things out with, with, Things are just yeah, a little so I'm much sure uncertainty. Right I know. Yeah. So, so there's those types of things, and then, like I said before, I've got several you know book projects and other projects I'd really like like to get going. And I mean, I've just you know from a business standpoint, there's so many things I should be doing, and just sitting at home and you know editing and writing and pitching stories, and you know, there's always those things too. Yeah. Well, awesome. Never Don. a shortage. Never a shortage. I know. Well, this has been a. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on here. And so it was fun to finally get, get a chance to meet virtually. So I, yeah, follow, I followed your work. I wish I could, could get up there. I have, I'll probably, I'm going to try to get to one fourteen or in September and that'll, that'll be it for the year. So awesome. Um, cool. And we'll see how many more I can, I don't know how many more I, I did a six mile hike the other day and I, I was hurting <laughs> when I was done. I, I think I think COVID played part played into that too. I, I feel like I didn't do as much hiking as I normally did last year. And it's just taken a little bit longer to, to get back to where I was. I totally get it. So. All right. Well, thank you to Don for the great chat today on the podcast. I had such a fun time and I know that if we were ever to meet up, we would have a lot to talk about. 
As I record this, we are in the throes of judging for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, and we could not be more pleased with the high quality of images that you guys have all submitted. You've really outdone yourself, so thank you for supporting the competition. We aim to have winners announced very soon, and then the hard work of making the fine art book begins. I'm also packing for an upcoming fall color photography trip, and I was reminded just how impressed I am with my Shimoda Action X50 backpack. After two full years of use, this thing is still in prime condition. I've taken it, I've taken it up mountains, into the desert, and on many, many backpacking trips, and I have to say, I've yet to find a more perfect system for my style of landscape photography. It's also the most comfortable backpack that I've ever used. If you're interested in getting one for yourself, you can find a link in the show notes and use the code PAIN10 for a 10% discount on your own backpack. It's worth it, trust me. Alright, well that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.